um, third chapter of Romans, we got through about verse 4. We'll back up to the beginning of the chapter and review just for a minute. But uh, in the first chapter, we looked at the sins of the Gentile world that did not know God. And, you know, not a lot of proof needs to be given that the world is sinful. But then he comes to chapter 2 and he proves the sin of the religious world. That even church people that know about God, that know about His Word, that they're sinful as well. And that both Jew and Gentile are in danger of the wrath of God and eternal destruction in hell outside of Jesus Christ. So we come to chapter 3 and he's stopped, paused for just a second to answer some questions that would naturally come up. The first one being, what advantage then hath the Jew? What good is it to be a Jew if this is the case? What good is it to go to church your whole life if you can go to church your whole life and die lost and undone? Well, much every way, chiefly. And I I want you to know that's a real possibility. It is possible to go to church, strive to be moral, and try to serve God your whole life and die lost and undone. And yet, he says it's advantage in every way, chiefly. So I told you, we're going to dig deeper into these questions as we go farther in the book. But here he gives one reason, because they have the oracles, the utterances of God. They had a knowledge of the Word of God. And you know, from Genesis unto Malachi, the law, the books of history of Israel, the prophets, types, shadows, prophecies, pictures, parables, all of the Messiah that was yet to come. They had a knowledge of sin. They had a knowledge that they were guilty before God. They had a knowledge that they needed a sacrifice to atone for their sins. They had a knowledge that the Messiah was coming. The rest of the world didn't even know what sin was and justified their sin. Just like today, no different than today, our world does not know sin. They do not know what's wrong. They don't know what's right. They don't know their right hand from their left. But those that go to church, they've got a knowledge that you're going to have to be saved. What an advantage that is over the man out in the world that doesn't know anything from God. So, the next question. Some didn't believe. And we know some didn't. We know the multitude in the wilderness that died there did not believe. Did that make the faith of God of none effect? Was that useless? Did God waste that effort? And we answered that last time. There were some that did believe. There were some all through the Old Testament that held to the truth all the way up till Jesus' day. We know of Simeon and Anna. We know of John's parents. We know Jesus' parents. There were some that held to the truth even though the majority did not believe. But what was his answer here? Let God be true and every man a liar. It's not God's fault. And it's not an issue with the truth of the Word of God as to why man doesn't believe. 
It's man that doesn't believe. The problem lies in the heart and in the mind of man that rejects the knowledge of the Word of God. So now we've come to the third question in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? So maybe this sounds silly to say, uh, as wild of a question as it is, but no doubt it's a question that's in the heart and mind of man. If me being sinful puts God's righteousness on display then how can God judge me for that? I think we got a a perfect example in Pharaoh down in Egypt. Pharaoh was a man that hardened his heart and stiffened his neck and did not obey anything that God said. But God's name was glorified in spite of Pharaoh's rejection and hardness of heart. God's name was exalted through His unrighteousness. Now is it wrong for God to judge if He's going to get glory either way? That's one way we could look at this question. But it's in judgment that God's going to receive that glory. In spite of the man, in spite of the woman, in spite of their attitude, in the judgment, every knee is going to bow and give the proper glory to the Son of God that He's worthy of. Though here, with every shred of intent that man has, he may purpose in his heart to give no glory, no honor, no thanks, and no praise to God, yet in the judgment, in spite of the hardness of man, God's name's going to be exalted and he's going to be exalted out of their mouth. Now the foolishness of the heart of man is also very apparent in Pharaoh that he walks to the edge of the Red Sea and here the people go with walls of water on both sides on dry ground in the midst of the sea and Pharaoh intends to go through after them. Now that's madness, wouldn't you say? That's a hardness and a blindness of heart that's beyond my ability to even understand why you would believe that you're going to go into the midst of the sea on dry ground that God has parted the water but we're going to go in and get them and bring them back. And yet in spite of the blindness and the madness and the hardness of Pharaoh, God received glory out of His name. Even so much as 40 years later, after all of the unbelievers died in the wilderness and the children crossed over the river, that all the hearts in Jericho melted because they heard. They heard what God did to Pharaoh. 40 years after the fact, God's going to get glory. Is God unrighteous to judge man? I speak as a man. So the answer, God forbid... For then how shall God judge the world? God's not going to be unrighteous in judgment. Already been proven in Romans 1 that just the revelation of nature and all the glory that God's put in His creation as well as the conscience in the heart of man all of that is enough 
outside of the Word. We don't need the Word of God for man to be guilty before God. We don't need the Word of God for man to be condemned before God. God's glory in nature and the conscience of man is enough to cause man to be guilty and God be just in destroying him. The Word of God is here to bring us to salvation. It's not here to condemn. Man's already condemned. He was condemned before Jesus came. And he was condemned before the voice of God came in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden before God ever cursed the ground and cursed man and woman. Man had fallen and was guilty before God. But the voice of God came and man hid. He was already condemned. God didn't have to do one thing to bring man down. Man had already fallen. And there's where man is today. God's provided a word to bring man to redemption and to salvation. God is not going to be unjust in judgment. Now the world may say, now wait a minute, till the gospel gets to this neck of the woods, God can't come back because they've not heard it. Well, what about the people that died there ten years ago that didn't hear it? Where are they at? Foolishness of man. Arrogance of man that I'm going to somehow usher in a new age. It's not going to happen. It's all by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God and God's going to be just whether they've ever heard the gospel or not. That's hard pill to swallow. But that's the Word of God. If God's going to be unrighteous in judgment, how's God going to judge the world? God's not going to be unrighteous and God is going to judge the world. For if the truth of God, this is verse 7, for if the truth of God hath abounded more through my lie unto His glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And so, another wording of the same question, if my sin has glorified God, then why would God judge me as a sinner? Well, the answer to that is because you've sinned. Because you are a sinner, God is, has the ability and is righteous to bring judgment upon man. See, it, it hurts man's feelings that he's not got some control or authority over God. You want to reject God? You want to avoid the truth? You want to shut your ears and eyes to the gospel? You can do that. God's going to glorify His name over your head whether you like it or not. God's name's going to be exalted whether you want to exalt it or not. That can be here. It could be. It could be in the judgment. But man is going to be judged as a sinner because man is guilty of breaking the righteousness of God because man's a sinner. Adam was judged because he was a sinner. God didn't have to come up with false charges like they did to the Lord Jesus. They had to make stuff up to condemn Him. He wasn't guilty. God's not going to have to charge any of us falsely. We're sinners. God's righteous to just and holy 
to judge those that are sinners and breakers of the law. Listen to this in Genesis. This is the words of Joseph, an absolutely beautiful Scripture. Now his brothers, his brothers absolutely hated him. And maybe partially, justly so. Because Joseph was the favorite and Jacob did nothing to hide that. It was obvious. They absolutely hated him. They wanted to kill him. And if it hadn't have been for Reuben, they probably would have killed him. But they decided, let's sell this man into uh, the Ishmaelites. Make him take him down to Egypt. And we'll never have to worry about him again. This problem, this brother that we despise, we'll get rid of him forever. There was no intention of good in their hearts whatsoever. Wouldn't you say that? Their intention was 100% evil towards Joseph. But listen to what Joseph says about their actions. Genesis chapter 50, verse 18. And his brethren went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are thy servants. Now they're scared, slapped to death of Joseph. Joseph is now the number one man in Egypt. And they're down there. They were starving to death because of the famine. And they've had to come to him. And now they're scared because they are guilty of what they've done to him. Their conscience has condemned them. So they bow before him and say, We're your servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? I'm not going to judge nor destroy you. I'm not in God's place. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. True statement. Their intention was 100% evil, but God meant it unto good. So God took these brothers, hatred, evil, and sin towards their brother, and turned it into that which was good that saved their own life. In spite of their evil, God got glory. Now does that justify them hating Joseph and selling him? Was that at all the right thing for them to do? No, they sinned and they were guilty of it. But in spite of their sin, God brought good out of the midst of it. So, if the truth of God hath more abounded, the truth of God always more abounds. See, they thought they were going to do evil, but God meant it for good. In Isaiah 10, I believe we've got a great example of this as well. Isaiah 10, verse number 6. Let's back up to 5. O Assyrian. Now who were the Assyrians? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. They were evil. They were pagan. They did not worship God. They worshiped idols. They were not saved people by any stretch of the imagination. But he says of the Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey 
and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit, he meaneth not so. Neither does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. So God says, I'm going to send him down to Jerusalem and I'm going to judge them for their sin through the hand of the king of Assyria. Their army is going to come in and lay waste and bring judgment according to my will. But that's not what the king of Assyria is thinking in his mind. He's looking to be the biggest and the best. His heart don't mean to do that. His heart doesn't desire to do the will of God. He's not like Hezekiah down praying and saying, God, what would your will be for me to do? Who would you like for me to assault? He's an evil king and his heart means to glorify himself. And God says, I'm going to send him and I'm going to use him for my purpose and for my glory. So God works in spite of man to his own glory. But man's heart is still evil and guilty. And God is still going to be just in judging it. Now we can look at a New Testament example of salvation of the very writer of this epistle, Paul. Paul had letters to Damascus. And those letters were to capture all that would be associated with the name of Jesus Christ and with the church, cast them in prison, maybe see some of the leaders to be killed, and to do away with this race of Christians. Do you think that was his intent? That was 100% his intent, and he was on his way to carry out those orders. But you know what? And it didn't take God a debate to change his mind. It wasn't over a week or two that Paul came to a revelation. But in a moment, God changed Paul's mind. Now people say today, why don't you change your mind? Why don't you make a decision? Why don't you choose to come to God? Man can't choose to come to God. God changed Paul in a moment, in an instant, and the God's truth is against Paul's will. God changed his will, didn't he? He did. You know what Paul said? Well, Paul got something special. Well, Paul says he's a pattern to all them that would believe. That's what Paul says. You know how people are going to be saved? By the direction, by the power, and by the glory of the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul didn't gradually change his mind. And he didn't make a decision. God struck him down. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. I'm the God that you've been persecuting. Paul, you've been wrong your whole life. You've been deceived your whole life. Jesus is the Lord. He was the Son of God. Paul's mind changed. God did that. And if you're saved, truly saved by the operation of God, God did that for you too. He changed your mind. He made you to believe what you did not believe.
and He turned you from the pathway that you were on and He did that before you ever came to the altar. Because you didn't intend on coming up. You didn't intend on being saved till God spoke to you. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, no wonder. No wonder we've got enemies of the gospel that spread lies today. Paul had them in his day. And they were slanderously reporting that Paul was preaching this doctrine. Let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. So that sounds funny in regards to the scripture we've covered if you read that at face value. But I believe here, you know, the great enemies here when this was written was the Judaizers. Even those that were a part of the church, if you got saved, they wanted you to be circumcised. They wanted you to eat only clean meats. They wanted you to keep the festivals. Even if you were a Gentile, they wanted to hold on to the tradition of the world and to the rudiments of the world and to the ceremonies of the world and of their religion instead of trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. So naturally, they're mad at Paul for preaching this doctrine of salvation in Christ alone. And they say, well, he's telling Jews to go out and be Gentiles that God would save them. Now, Paul doesn't provide an answer to that as he does the others. But he says this, whose damnation is just. What kind of sense does it make that, well, in order for God to save me, I need to go out in the world and really commit sin that that good might come unto me. Let's do evil that God would bless. Let's do evil, and we're going to see in a chapter or two, that grace... Where sin abounded, grace is much more abound. So let's go out and let's commit a bunch of sin that God's grace might superabound. Shall we continue in sin? No, that's the wicked twisting of the mind of man who as Jude said, they've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness unto licentiousness, unto unbridled lust. I think about it like this, a license to sin. They've took the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the long-suffering of God and they've said, well look, God's give grace in Jesus. Let's just go sin and God's grace will take care of it. Still very prevalent today. Still the way people and the mind of man thinks today. Let's do evil and good will come from it. That's not the case. God's Word couldn't be plainer against that. He says, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That thought comes from the carnal mind and the logic of man. No, you know where we ought to be? We ought to be at the house of God. We ought to be here every time. We ought to hear the Gospel we ought to give our attention to that. That good might come. But just because I go out and sin today, that don't mean God's blessings coming tomorrow. Judgment could very well come tomorrow. 
whose damnation is just. So, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. It's already been proven, but we're going to prove it a little more here. So, here's the question. Who's better than who? Go back to the place here. Here's the Jew who knows the law, who knows the prophets, who was brought up worshiping the God of the Bible, who was brought up and taught what was good and what was evil, who knew that Jesus was coming. They knew all these things. And here's the Gentile that's a drunkard and a fornicator and an adulterer and a sinner of all sinners and one that worships idols and that sacrifices to idols, maybe even child sacrificers. And all manner of evil. Now who's better? Is one better than another? Well, I've been brought up at church. And I've been in church for 50 years. And I've laid in a ditch on dope and drugs for 50 years. Who's better? Is one better than another? Or what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. In no place. And by no means is one any better than another. That is so contrary to the thinking of man. But that is the Word of God. If we could believe one thing, know this, that there's not one better than another in the judgment and in the wrath of God. Now I say this for your natural life. Your natural life can be a whole lot better if you try to do the right thing. You try to live right and you try to work. You can have a whole lot better life, naturally speaking, than what them that are alcoholics and on drugs and commit sin and don't have families that are adulterers and fornicators. You can have a better life, naturally speaking. But before God, the Bible says, we have before proved Jews and Gentiles that they are both under sin. In Luke chapter 7, this is very familiar. Jesus has come to Simon the Pharisee's house to eat. The Pharisees, the straightest sect of the Jews, the people that kept the law to the letter as close as anybody that there was. And here comes a sinner woman. And she's probably a harlot. Maybe on drugs, maybe a drunkard. She, she's, a, she's a bad woman. We'll just leave it at that. She's an evil woman. Here's Simon, the Pharisee, and here's a woman of great sin. Now she comes in and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. And this is what the Pharisee says. If this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So this is what he says. If this man was a prophet, he'd know who she was and he would not let her anywhere near him. He would have told her to leave and not let her touch him.
You know, he couldn't touch her because he'd be considered unclean if he did. Because she was an unclean sinner. But the Lord knew who she was. And the Lord came to redeem sinners just like that. But you know something Simon couldn't see? That he was just like her. Jesus said, Simon, see us this woman. Look past her sin for just a minute and realize that she's come and you didn't kiss me when I come in. She's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't give me any water to wash in and she's washed with her tears and with the hair of her head. Simon thought and believed that he was better than this sinful woman. You look at Saul and David at the course of their life and you would think that Saul was better than David. David really committed some of the most egregious sins that we've got in the Old Testament. But David repented and Saul Saul said Samuel just turn around and worship with me so the people don't know was one better no they were both guilty and Saul was destroyed because he did not repent and his family was cast out and his name forgotten out of the book of kings of Israel and David was established because he repented. Both are under sin. The sinful condition affects all of mankind. Now, if you notice at the end of this, you've got a colon, semicolon. So he's going to add to this thought. And we're going to have another list. And these next few verses, verses 10 through 18, this is all Scripture out of the Old Testament. Paul's not making this up. No doubt many accused Paul of making stuff up, of saying what he thinks with no evidence. But I tell you, we've got plenty of Scripture to prove that man's under sin. And to prove the Jews under sin, he's going to quote mostly out of Psalms. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, quotes from different places here. But it's all out of the Old Testament. You can find it every bit there. And the interesting thing about this list, We've got the list in the first chapter of Romans. We've got a list in Corinthians. We've got a list in Galatians. There's somewhat of a list in the book of Titus. There's a list in the book of Timothy of sins outward in the flesh. But you know, not everybody's a murderer. Not everybody's an adulterer. Not everybody's a fornicator. Not everybody's a drunkard. Not everybody's a gambler. We're not all guilty of these sins. But this list, this is all of mankind. This is a description of what all of man is in the eyes of God. So let's start. We've proved Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none, so none 
That's a word that denotes zero. There is none, zero, that is righteous. No, a negative. Not, a double negative. One. There's not even one of Adam's seed that is righteous. There's none of man that can stand before God and God justify him of his own merits. There's not one that has kept the law as God would have it be kept. There's not one that could be declared as good before God. Jesus said that Himself. There's none good but one. That is God. There is not one that's going to die from this world and stand before God and be justified by His life, by His actions, and by His deeds. That's the Word of God. It, it could not be translated into English and it be any plainer than that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. So that word means to put together or to comprehend. So there's none that comprehends. There's none that's able to put together. You know what man does in his carnal mind? Man's got an idea of God. Man's got an idea of how God's worshipped. Man's got an idea of how God's praised. You can see that in John chapter 4. You've got the Samaritan woman who says, I worship God in this mountain and your people worship down in Jerusalem. They had their own idea of how God was going to be worshipped. But I, to understand that he's guilty before God and that he's in need of redemption, there's not one that comprehends that. Every man, this is out of the Proverbs, every man is right in his own eyes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So as man looks, man justifies himself and is right in his own mind and man looks at Gentiles round about him that commit more outward evil and he says, I'm doing better towards God than everybody else is doing. He can't comprehend that he himself is guilty and in need of redemption. There's not one that understands it. You know how man comes to that understanding? By the revelation of the power of God. It doesn't matter what you believed before you were saved or believe now. You're right. You were right and you were going to heaven if you believed in heaven or you were going to be just fine when you died if you didn't believe anything. You were justified in your sight and you could not comprehend the need of redemption for your soul. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now these, these two go together. Because I don't comprehend my need, I'm not going to seek after God's mercy and His forgiveness. Do you see that? I mean, a lot of people seek after God 
for a promotion, for more money, for help in the family, for help in the world, for my sickness, for my family's sickness. A lot of people are seeking God, but that's not what he's talking about here. There's none that understand that they have a spiritual need and because there's none that understand that, there's none that are seeking God for a remedy of that. You've got that in that picture of Simon the Pharisee. He was right in his own eyes and justified. He wasn't seeking Jesus for forgiveness. He wasn't looking for help. He wasn't looking for God to have mercy on him. He was right the way he was. And he was sure better than that sinner woman that come in. She justified him in his own eyes. And man today is justified in his own eyes and there's no seeking after God. Look at our number compared to the number within 10 miles of here in every direction. There's very few seeking a word from God today. Very few in every community, in every county, and in every state, there's very few that are seeking after a word from God. They want money. We want pleasure. We want the good of this world. We want good for our family in this world. We want them to have the best things in this world. And yet there's none that understand that they need the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. People are justifying themselves by their actions and by their deeds and by what they say and what they do and they've missed the very redemption that Jesus purchased with His own blood. They've missed it. They're too good for it. And they're not seeking God for it either. They're seeking the world and the world comes first. And the good of the world comes first. And the pleasure of the world comes first. And the God's truth, you look at the world, at the, the most unhappy day and hour that we're in today, and man as a whole in the United States has got more than any generation ever before then. It hasn't done man any good, and yet man's still seeking. Not seeking after God, God said in one of the prophets, I'll send the canker worm and the palmer worm and I'll destroy your crops and I'll destroy your goods and what you gather you're going to put it in a bag with holes in it and you're going to wind up with nothing and yet you still have not sought me. God brings man to nothing spiritually and there's none that understands. It ain't because I've done the wrong thing with God that I'm in this shape. No, I'm right with God. I just need to get the world fixed. We're talking about a God that can do good in spite of man's evil. God can fix the world if man would seek God first. But there's a problem. Nobody understands that. We can't put that together. We can't put together that me leaving and forsaking God's what's wrong in the first place. Nope. There's none that understandeth. Let's look in Psalm 53. A familiar chapter. Psalm 53, verse number 1. The fool said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they. And they have abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. 
God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. You can see it here. They sinned. They're filled with abominable iniquity. And yet, as God looks over man, and He's not looking to see if they've sinned, that's already been determined in verse 1. God's looking to see if anybody is seeking after Him for mercy. This is what He says. Every one of them is gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. As God looks at man, not only is all of man in sin, but all of man can't comprehend the danger and the evil that he's in and a part of, and he's not able to perceive a need to seek after God. Boy, we're in a hopeless place, ain't we? I told you, that until a few verses, there wasn't any hope in this Scripture. This is the condition of man in his natural state. There's none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So, same quote, same chapter, Psalm 53. But again, as Paul is compiling these Old Testament Scriptures, again, you've got that there's none that doeth good. No, not one. Well, I've done good this week. I beg your pardon. That is not what the Bible says. There's a song. And I can't remember the name of it. The choir sings it. By Him my prayers acceptance gain, though with sin defiled. It's through the blood of the Lamb of God that man is going to get in touch with the Lord Jesus, saved or lost. Because you're not getting there because you've done good. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Gone out of the way, it means to deviate, to shun, or to decline. That denotes my choice. You want to know what you are? Look what you choose to do. And look what you choose to ignore. You want to know how good you really are? Look at your choices in this life. They've all chose to go out of the way that God would have them do. Why, I'm not going to choose to do that. That's a lie. We would all choose to do that. If it were not for God's grace... But I tell you this, if I get high on me and what I am and how strong I am and how able I am and how good I am, God can pull back just a little and let me know what I am. Peter said, Lord, I'll never 
deny you. I will never depart. I will never let them take you. And Peter drew his sword, remember, in the garden. And he was ready to fight had the Lord not stopped him. Peter meant business. Peter thought he did. But boy, when it come down to it, you know what Peter chose? I don't know who he is. You're mistaken. I do not know him. And I wasn't a part of his disciples. And the third time to really prove the point, he cursed. We're no different than Peter. We've all deviated from the right way. We've all gone away. So in Ecclesiastes 7.20, talk about a plain Scripture. He doesn't really quote this Scripture here, but I believe it fits perfectly. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. 7.3 billion people on the earth. You know one thing we know for certain about every single one of them? They may all look different. They may all have different DNA. They may all have different fingerprints. But inwardly, there's not one of all of those people that do the right thing and that sins not. They have all gone out of the way. They've all become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, a grave. In this day, they would drill out a sepulcher. And they may put one body in there if you were rich. If not, they would put many in there. One would die, they would put him in the sepulcher. They would roll the rock in front. When somebody else would die, they would roll the rock out, put them in there, roll the rock back. Well, God says their throat is an open sepulcher. So can you imagine there what that's like? He, he told the Pharisees, you're like the whited sepulchers. They've made it pretty on the outside and they've painted it up and they've added religion to it, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. Well, here the throat is an open sepulcher. It's opened and the odor and the wickedness and the sin, and the foul smell. Now, we can't smell it, but it comes up in God's nostrils. The iniquity that comes through the throat and out of the mouth. I heard a fellow say, I've heard him say it many times, that the mouth is the bucket and the heart is the well. And the bucket of the mouth draws out what's in the well of the heart. The Lord Jesus said that. And you know what that open sepulcher does? The smell of the death inside the sepulcher is pouring out because it's open. Well, the death in the heart is proven by the words and by the voice that comes through the throat and out of the mouth. It's obvious. It's plain. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues, they have used deceit. So Paul said earlier, 
Let God be true and every man a liar. David said in his haste that all men were liars. With their tongues they've used deceit. Have you ever used deceit with your tongue? To the harm of somebody else and to the benefit of you. (coughs) That's what God says about man. That he's willing to use his tongue for deceit to benefit him whether it harms somebody else or not. The poison of asps is under their lips. The asp. I don't know what kind of snake it was. We got copperheads around here. You know what the copperhead is? He blends in. He's not out making a big racket, but he's right there beside the trail half buried under leaves, and he's subtle, and he's quiet, and when you step close enough, he makes himself known, and the venom is there to bring pain and to bring suffering. Well, that's what God says about man. You know what man's ready to do? That, That copperhead, he don't have to work or do something special to get the venom there. They've got sacks inside their fangs. When contact's made, it's injected. It's there. It's there right now. It may be a day or two before he strikes, but it's there and ready. That's the way man is. The venom is in his mouth. And you know what he's there for? Man's ready to cut down his fellow man. Ready to bring harm and to poison and to destroy. That could be in many ways. We're not pointing it out down to the nail on the head. But it's there. Prepared and ready to destroy somebody out of the open sepulcher of the mouth. This is every one of us. We all have this. James said of the tongue, it's a world of iniquity. And it's set on fire of hell. So, all of man whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is the natural mouth of man. You know, all of this has to do with the mouth. There's a reason for that. You might control what you do with your hands. But boy, this right here is a different story. You might control this in certain situations. But you let the time get right. And this will let you know what's in here. It'll prove it. His mouth is full of cursing, imprecation, or invoking evil on another. And bitterness, acridity, especially poison. The the mouth of man, and it's something, how the mouth of man likes and enjoys the misery of others. Even though that may not be anywhere close to what comes out. That's what's in here. And the mouth is ready to bring down, to curse, and to destroy mankind. His own own brothers, his own sisters, his own family, his own friends, and those that he's around 
The heart of man is evil, hateful, and wicked, and the mouth is ready to cut down and destroy and to desire evil to come. Remember, Jesus and John the Baptist both said, Oh, you generation of vipers, with the venom of Satan in their mouth. Now he was speaking to religious people. You could stand in a place like this and give venom to everybody that hears. You could poison everybody with the lies and with the deceitfulness of the mouth of man. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood. They are keen and swift to wickedness. Their feet are swift. You know you want to tie it all in together here. We're talking about the hatred, the running down, the cutting down of fellow man. Well here the feet are quick to do so. When the opportunity arises for me to benefit myself at the expense of another, the feet of man are swift to do so. To take advantage of every opportunity to exalt myself at another's expense. Boy, I tell you, man's man's wicked, ain't he? Destruction and misery are in his path, are his ways, in their ways. So destruction, utter fracture, broken to pieces, complete ruin. It's that that's broken so severely it cannot be put back together. You know what's in the way of natural man? Utter destruction. Complete ruin. It's just like taking that water and dumping it out here. You'll never, it is impossible that you would ever get it all back in there just like it is right now. It's impossible. Well, there's mankind in sin and it's impossible that he get himself back together and the judgment of God is just a few days ahead. Jacob said, few and evil have been the number of my days. Few and evil. That's all all of us have. It's just a few days and judgment waits. Destruction and misery. Wretchedness. Calamity is in their ways. You know the way of man? It always winds up in the same place. It always winds up in the same location. You know, you've got the Jordan River over there in Israel. And you've got all tributaries, like Spring Creek here, all the tributaries that come out of hollers and hills and springs and wet weather springs and all this water goes to the creek. But you know, if it comes from atop of Doggett or if it comes from up there at the foot of David's property at Betsy or if it comes off a metaphoric or if it comes from the top of Woolly Shot, you know where all that water's going? Down there to the river in the same place. The Jordan River, you know where that water's going? It's going to dump itself in the Dead Sea. 
A place where there's no life. That's where all the ways of man are going. The religious, they may be flowing off a metaphoric and the wicked coming from dogged, but know this, that in the way of man is utter destruction and complete ruin and misery. You hear people say that they're in misery, but the misery of hell and of the judgment and the wrath of God, that's no comparison to anything that man would endure or have to face today. And I've run over. I'm sorry. We'll stop right there and we'll pick up there next time. We're almost to the place where the light of the glorious gospel begins to shine through this book. We've been in sin for several, several, probably 13 weeks we've been in these verses. There's no hope in sin, but God interjected hope. I looked and when I saw there was no man, there's not any man. Mine own arm brought salvation. Glory to God for His wondrous, wondrous works through His Son.